Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Well, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. And it's been a little while. We both kind of got a little busy with our jobs there, didn't we, Trey? Yes, I work in a restaurant, so it's been a wild two weeks for me with Mother's Day and Memorial Day weekend and, and graduations going on all over the latter half of last week, which I had completely forgotten about. So rather than just rush through something and give you a half-ass content we decided we'd you know we'd hold off until we could do it properly so before we get into this week's topic we lost an icon yes we did yeah and trey you were the one that first told me about this i think you heard about it before anybody and we're talking of course about tina turner the legend my ex-wife who will probably hear this messaged me but then i messaged you instantly but yes but i was surprised when i saw it i was like what and she's one of those people that I I think I just convinced myself was eternal, you know, that she was going to live forever. I mean, even till the very end, she still had a very youthful energy about her. You know what I mean? I mean, nothing ever slowed her down. Apparently had been talking about doing a world tour. Really? <laughs> so, wow. I saw her in 1987 with Level 42 opening for her and. Yeah. It shocked me. I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't think she was 83. I thought she was 79 or 80. And oh my gosh, to be looking as fantastic as she did in heels and uh, and the miniskirts, you know, I should be so lucky to look half that good at 83. You know what I mean? Those legs. Yeah. Shall we play a little bit of one of her songs? Yes, I I'll, I'll let you pick it. I just want to note here something right quick you know i'm always talking about the dx7 synthesizer and her private dancer lp was actually a showcase for the dx7 yamaha found out she was staging a comeback album and got two of them to the production so that's considered like a demo of the dx7 there that entire album well that's cool so maybe we should play a little bit of uh the song private dancer let's go for it all right All the men come in these places And the men are all the same You don't look at their faces And you don't ask their names You don't think of them as human You don't think of them at all You keep your mind on the money Keeping your eyes on the wall I'm your private dancer A dancer for money Do what you want me to do 
Okay, so hey, that brings us to our topic of the week. We're still in 1986, and Trey, you know I've been chomping at the bit for a couple weeks now, ready to talk about this album. And this is a great album. We're talking, of course, about Notorious by Duran Duran. You know, I just want to say here, I always hated the name of this album. Really? Yeah. My understanding is that it was named after the Alfred Hitchcock movie. John Taylor's a big Hitchcock fan, and actually, I think that was his favorite Hitchcock movie. I believe I've read that over the years, and it's kind of in one of my dusty files in the back of my mind. Okay. Well, before we listen to the album, let's talk a little bit about what was going on here. So, I, you know, I always get confused and think this album came out in what November of '85 instead of November of '86, and I don't know what weird thing in my head has mixed that memory up. But well, so for me, this was let's see, eighth grade. You know, I, as a young Duran Duran fan, I mean, I was really excited about it especially since there'd been that little bit of a hiatus there. Let's talk about what was going on here. So in 86, Duran Duran decided to part ways with their longtime managers, the Barrow brothers, Paul and Michael. Roger Taylor, the drummer, had decided that he was too exhausted to continue in the music business, so he had left the band. Then we have Andy Taylor, the guitarist. You know, I was finding different info on this. Apparently... He may have shown up at the sessions. I've seen other sources say that they couldn't get him in the studio. Well, so here's what happened. So Andy Taylor was still technically in the band. Right. However, while the rest of the band was in London, Andy was in Los Angeles working on a new album with Patrick O'Hearn and Terry Bazio, formerly of the band Missing Persons. Now, the rest of Duran Duran had no idea this was going on. They're waiting around in air studios in London for Andy to show up and record with them. There was another member of Missing Persons, Warren Cucurillo, their guitarist. He caught wind of the fact that Andy was working with his former bandmates. So he puts together a demo tape, sends it to Duran Duran in London, and gets one of their assistants on the phone in London introducing himself. And he says, tell Duran I'm the perfect guitar player for them. Have them call me. Now, up until this point, the rest of Duran Duran had no idea that Andy was leaving the band. Right. So this kind of came as a little bit of a shock to them. Now, keep in mind, this was pre-internet, right? So there was no email. You know, there were no cell phones or anything. So... You know, word didn't travel as quickly as it does nowadays. Andy wasn't the only person that the boys were waiting for in London. They were also waiting for producer Niall Rogers. Now, they had worked with him previously on the single for The Reflex, and they wanted him to produce the album. So he was supposed to show up in May of 1986, However, he was busy working on a project with Grace Jones, and that ran long. So Niall didn't actually make it to London until August. And by then, the band had already written most of the songs for the album. Now, when I'm referring to the band here, I mean Simon Laban, Nick Rhodes, and John Taylor, because Andy's still off in L.A., they realized that they're kind of short of guitarists. So there were a couple things that were going on here. Their people 
got on the phone with Andy's people to remind him that, hey, you have a contract and you are contractually required to play on this album. But he kind of dragged his feet a little bit and they realized, okay, we've got Niall, who had been the guitarist for Chic. So he, he brings the funky rhythm guitar. So they used him very heavily. And they also brought Warren in at the time as a session musician. Now, eventually he did become a full-fledged member of the band. But at this time, I think they were still considering him a session musician. They also brought on, by the way, a new drummer, because we know Roger had left. They brought on Steve Ferroni from Average White Band. Okay. So between Steve and Niall, I think they were really hoping to elevate this. I think I saw in an interview that John Taylor was kind of hoping to emulate Prince with that kind of a funk sound. I've heard this album called a white funk album. It definitely has elements of that all through it. Mm-hmm. Both Niall and John Taylor recollect that they spent most of the time they were creating this album out of their minds on cocaine. John apparently wasn't even eating. He basically lived on a diet of cocaine and alcohol. Despite that, I think that, you know, the, the end result on this is okay. One of the reasons this album stands out is because there's three guitarists playing on it. Warren, Andy, and Niall. They did eventually get Andy to come into the studio to play on four tracks, finish out his contract, and then he left to pursue a solo career. That's what I was written. Maybe he played on that song, Notorious, and maybe he didn't. No one seems to really know what, what, what was used. There's a couple sources out there that do a pretty good job of breaking down who's playing guitar on what tracks. So actually, that's one of the things that I do want to talk about when we talk about the individual okay. tracks. It's kind of, well, kind of what, my, what my detective work has uh and that's what you do that's what you bring to the show best (laughs) lori with the fact lori with the facts thank you so this album came out as you mentioned trey november of 86 it went to number 12 in the u.s which was you know not as good as their previous three albums and you know i will say as a diehard duran duran fan at 86 i was a little disappointed when this album came out I, I didn't know what to think of it, but I liked it. But yeah. I was a little older than you. True. I was 16, and and my musical horizons had greatly expanded between 7 and this one. You know, I, I confess, I didn't actually buy this album when it came out. Now, my best friend, Shelly, had bought it, and I used to listen to it at her house all the time. And I do want to give a shout out to Shelly because I just found out that she is in a hospital in Florida recovering from uh, toxic shock. Oh, and well. she's been hospitalized for a few weeks. So, hey, Shelly, if you happen to be listening, I always associate this album with you and listening to it in your house. And uh, and I hope you get better soon. You know, I ended up at Christmas of 86. I ended up with three or four copies of this album. Did you really? People, everybody in my family gave me a copy of it. I'm like, y'all don't oh. realize I would have had this the day it came out. So when I was prepping for this episode, Trey, I went back and I looked at an old Sky TV interview with Nick and John. And I felt better after I saw this interview because John says that he was only happy with about half of the album tracks. And that's what I was about to say is I think about half the tracks on this album are really good. And I think half of them are kind of disappointing. 
again, like I've said about the past what, two records we've discussed, it just nosedives on side two of me. Okay. I still like the whole album, but it just, those last two tracks in particular just don't fit the flow of the album. Like I've said that about so. Okay. Should have been a different order if you ask me. All right. Well, why don't we dive in to side one? All right. All right. You want me so to lead this track? We have the yes. lead-off single, Notorious. And this was, you remember, uh, MTV was, oh shit, I should have waited, shouldn't I? Oh, you're fine. Remember MTV played the video every hour on the hour of the day it premiered. Was this the video with Chrissy Turlington? Probably. There was a couple of hot chicks in it, so she okay. sounds like she'd be a hot chick. You were so funny. Well, that's what they had back then. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, so this was released as a single prior to the album this was released as a single on october 20th 1986 yeah and it was duran duran's first single since a view to a kill i loved it it re did reach number two on the billboard hot 100 now on this single we have nile rogers on guitar and he also brought on for this track and then for a number of other tracks the borneo horns he was yes. going for like more of an ethnic sound i think I can remember reading that name in the album credits and being like, who in the hell are the Borneo Wars? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I remember reading Trey many years ago, and of course I couldn't find anything to substantiate this now. But I remember reading that a, a lot of the lyrics of this song were actually about Boy George, who around this time was arrested for heroin possession. However, I couldn't find anything to substantiate that, so I may have imagined reading that. No, uh, I've, heard that, that... I've heard oh, that. I've heard that too. You? That you you did read that somewhere because I've read it. Apparently, Simon won't won't say. Well, you know, and John and Bo Boy George actually lived on the same floor of a building, and I don't remember what city it was in. Mm -hmm. So there was like, yeah, there was some overlap there. There was always a lot of tension between Culture Club and Duran Duran. Were they using the same dealer? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, Maybe. John, don't get mad at me if you hear this one day. <laughs> so uh, there, there's one line in this song that's actually kind of a dig at Andy, Andy Taylor. So Andy's not on this song. But that line, who gives a damn for a flaky bandit? And Simon has even admitted that that was a dig at Andy. The whole flaky bandit thing and the power station videos, you know, how he's got the... the hair um, metal look. He's got kind of the... He I, had I that, don't know his what a band earlier. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. And he's got on the... It's not a... It looks like a, a 
heavier denim jacket with like padding on it and yes he's got the spiky 80s metal hair yeah so arguably this is one of the best songs on the album i mean we've talked before about how a lot of times they would lead with the strongest track and i think that they did that here and i, I can definitely see the record label going you, you guys better put this one out first because the rest of this is good but not as strong as this and of course notable for uh number one being featured in the film donnie darko which our yes. listeners know is one of my favorites and then, of course, it was also sampled by the Notorious B.I.G., wasn't it? One of those rappers. I remember sometime in the late 90s hearing that, being like, the fuck are you? And then they started rapping, you know. Yo, check it. Call Lil C's. Tell that motherfucker to bring me some no, motherfucking weed no, from the hospital. No, no, fuck that. Notorious. Tell that reporter to go pick up 10,000 from Dez and go no, take about like 20 G's from Dino. No, Tell that motherfucker to get this nigga next door. I'm out of here. This nigga be showing all night. I can't sleep. And call that big butt nurse with the long hair to come suck my dick. Bad boy, come on. The doctor said I need about three weeks of recovery. But the nurses is loving me, saying the best part of the day is my half. Feeding me breakfast and giving me a sponge bath. Nigga say I died dead in the streets. Nigga, I'm getting high, getting head on the beach. Chilling, sitting on about half a million. With all my niggas, all my guns, all my women. The next two years, I should see about a billion all for the love of drug dealers uh, got no love for the other side Fuck them at work in a kitchen one night i i was probably circa 2004 2005 is for walking around it's like randomly walking up to people and going i doubt your commitment to sparkle motion and people would have no freaking idea what i was what what is wrong with him Oh, Donnie Darko, friends, you need to watch it if you haven't seen it. It will blow your mind. Even if you don't like the movie, it's got a wonderful 80s soundtrack. So it's got a lot of great music in it. James Duvall in the rabbit costume. What's that guy, the, the infomercial guy? They got that. Doesn't one of those infomercial people make an appearance in it? Isn't it Tony Robbins or one of those weird oh. people? Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, Trey. It's been about I haven't seen it in about fifteen yeah. years. Yeah. Might need to remedy that soon. Yeah. All right. So hey, anything else you want to say about the song Notorious? I think that about covers it. It was a Yeah, I think we should note the song was all over the place. Now this album kind of had some lackluster sales in comparison to their other stuff. This song was everywhere in October and November of eighty six. Yeah. I well, almost the song said, did very well. I almost said 85 there. you funny. I don't know why that's there. The song did very well. Oh, yeah. All right, so the next track is called American Science. Let's listen. Get a little bit out of hand Making all of us spill And if we can lay this down You're going all the way Take a look and I'll check it out Two-step and sway Ooh, it's the joke of Don't keep me waiting Come and love this out of me 
So Trey, this one's notable because it actually features all three guitarists. Mm-hmm. We have Niall on rhythm guitar. Andy plays the first guitar solo and Warren plays the second guitar solo. This was actually the first song on the album where I was kind of like, wait, where are they going? Yeah. You know, they were actually at one time, at least the rumor is that they were planning on releasing this as the fourth single off the album, but it ended up being scrapped because the second and third singles didn't do so well. Isn't there a bootleg of this single mix that was never released floating around out there? Oh, I, there's got to be. I think be. it I'm is. Sure there is. I'm sure there is. Now, I haven't heard it. Have you? Probably. Yeah. What do you think of this one before I, I, I talk about what I think of it? I mean, it's not a terrible song. It just was totally not what happened. You know, get home with the record. I actually bought this on vinyl. Get home with the record for the first time. Play Victorious, and it goes into this one. It's totally not what I was expecting to hear next. Yeah. I don't love it. It's, well, it's whiny. Simon's lyrics are whiny in this song. And, you know, and I don't get it. I don't get what, what it's about. What what American science, she can two-step and sway. What? I mean, you know, we know Simon is well known for his obtuse lyrics, but. I was going to yeah. say, I, I, I ended up on some forum last week when a bunch of people talking about this album. Some, some, some girl, this post was some like 2005, chimed in and said, Simon messed up with the lyrics on this album because he kind of stepped into reality with them instead of having them so vague and out there like the previous albums and I was like that person's right going on what you just said about the rest of the lyrics on the record I don't mind this one at all it's, it's not a terrible song it just was like I said I had no idea what to think of it the first time I heard it I was like what, what are they doing yeah. I was expecting more sequences and vaguely sexual lyrics not, not this you know yeah yeah well Then, if you want to talk about vaguely sexual lyrics, should we move on to track three? Right. Up next, we have Skin Trade, and I I don't think there's anyone left wondering what this one was about. This is actually one of my, my, probably my favorite song on the album. This is a really good one. Yes, that this, groove, that yeah. bass groove, man. Oh, yeah. John's bass, especially where it kind of breaks down in the middle yeah. there, in the middle yeah. of eight. Oh, so good. So good. So this was the second single off the album. It was released on January 31st, 1987. Mm-hmm. Only reached number 39 on the Billboard Hot 100, so just oh. barely into the top 40. 
Well, you know, the video uh, was still all over him. I didn't mean to cut you off. The video was video was still all over MTV. Yeah. I remember seeing this a gazillion times a day. Oh, I love the video. Yeah. Yeah. So it didn't do so hot on the American charts. 22 on the UK single chart. And interestingly enough, it went to number three in Italy. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. The Italians do like their dance tracks. Disco was still big there in 86. They were probably eating this up. Mm-hmm. So the title for the song was derived from the Dylan Thomas book, Adventures in the Skin Trade, which John Taylor had on him during the recording of the album. There was a, an interview many years ago that Simon was talking about the song and how he originally had the verses much, much slower. I'm sorry, not the verses, like the chorus. He had it very slow. Would someone please explain? And Niall Rogers came in and 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 basically, no, you got it. You got to up the tempo. Will yeah. someone please explain? And this is one where I, I'm so glad that, you know, Niall was involved because I do think that he made it a much better song. Well, you know, that's essentially what a producer of any album would do. He'll be like, guys, that sucks. Do that this way. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what they're there for. Yeah. So Niall also played rhythm guitar on this track and Warren played the bridge. Simon has said that the lyrics reflect on how everyone is selling themselves and, quote, there's a little hooker in each of us. You know, you hear about the sex trade. You hear about sex workers and people look down on them. Oh, you're just using your body, you know. But then you think about, like, the coal miners in the Appalachians that are coming down with black lung disease mm-hmm. and, you know, that are injuring their backs and everything else. And they're doing the same thing. They're using their body for money, too. Exactly. I agree. You know, so, I, you know, everybody, I think, to some extent, is guilty of that. And I think that that's kind of reflected in the song. Hey, did you know that the single cover was banned? I can believe I did read that over the course of the past week i'm trying to i had it yeah i had the 12 inch i probably had the 45 too well the the band cover just had a a a woman's butt cheek and so most of the record stores had just like a solid red cover yeah yeah i think the 12 inch had a hand-drawn drum or something i'm I'm confusing it with something else it's possible no it didn't it was just plain red Oh, okay. I'm like, because you're the you're the 12 inch single master, so. There was, but we see we got into this before that different countries a single would have different covers and all kinds of crazy shit like that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe I had the British one or something, and it did have a picture on it. Who knows? That's possible. I'd like to make a note here that people are probably noticing this by now. And I haven't been talking much about the synthesizers on this album. Because I couldn't find anything stating what gear Nick would have used on this LP. Just some um, wild guesses. So I found that unusual. Well, it's not as synth heavy as their previous albums either. They're definitely there. And some of those, uh, what's the word I need? Rhythm tracks, the, the not the actual drums, but the rhythm tracks and some of the songs are definitely drum machines and sequences. Okay. For sure. Whether Nick did that or Niall did it, I don't know, but. There definitely there's some electronics in this album. You just don't really realize it. You see what I mean? They're integrated very well with right. the yeah. 
with the organic instruments. Mm-hmm. Whoever mixed this album and mastered it did a good job is what that means. Super. All right. That Next, we have a matter of feeling. This one was kind of a downer to me. Yeah. What'd you think? I like it. I think it's it's one of the better songs on the album. It is a little bit of a downer, yeah. You know, it's more of a ballady kind of... Let me rephrase that. I shouldn't say it was a downer. It was just an abrupt turn from the first three tracks. Mm, that's true. Not quite as funky as the first three tracks. Yeah, this one is a lot more ballady. Yeah. Now, this one does have some really nice synths from Nick Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. They really kind of carry the melody along. Very nicely done. I think it's most likely a Fear Light CMI, like we've talked about with him before, and samples. All right. And we do have both Andy and Niall on guitars. Okay, here's where Andy appears. Yes, and there's actually, well, because Andy was also uh, on um, American Science. All three of the guitarists were on American Science. So Andy was on a total of four tracks on this album. And there's actually, Trey, a demo of this song with Andy singing the vocals. I believe I ran upon that before. Yeah. So, you know, this is one of those deep album tracks that I think... Honestly, I think many of my favorite Duran Duran songs are the deep album tracks where Simon is getting into this kind of ballady atmosphere. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that this one in particular is one of my favorites, but we'll see this on a few albums where, you know, the when we talk about like favorite tracks and stuff. I'm rambling. No, you're fine. I was just listening to you go. Okay. Anything else on a matter of feeling? I'll take that about covers it for that one. Okay. Well, the last track on side one is called Hold Me.
And I love this song. I knew you were going to say that. Is it because of the synths? It's almost a hair metal song. Really? How so? It's just so upbeat, 1986 sounding to me. They were definitely... I, I always wonder why in the hell that wasn't a single. Is this a great upbeat, happy song? I could just you could just picture that hearing that on the radio in spring of '86 with everything else that was going on. Yeah, I love this song. I just the synths in it are great. It's got nice guitar work on it. The lyrics are straightforward, and you you know what he's singing about. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna contradict you here. I can I, see um... that. Yeah, that I'm going to contradict you. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I, I could tell this isn't like you're what you normally gravitate to. It, it's, it's forgettable. It, it's bland it. and forgettable. This yeah. is every, every time I play this album, sometimes I'll just play this song first and then go through really? the rest of it. Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, we have both Andy and Warren playing guitars on this song. I guess Andy threw a little of his hair metal, metal stuff he was getting into in here. There you go. But I've actually read that even Andy and Warren can't tell which parts, which parts uh, they yeah, played and which I'm, part the other one played. Yeah. There's so much out there about that, but I did read that. It's such a great song, man. It, it, like I just said, how in the hell was this not released as a single? Mm. Okay. And they actually I played guess... it live, too, and it was great because they rocked it up a little. Was this when you saw them live in uh, on the Notorious tour? Mm-hmm. But Erasure, yeah. Erasure, Erasure was the opening act. I, I, I've always struggled with saying that word. They were the opening act. It was at Six Flags in Atlanta, which was an unusual place for this concert. But this was like the third song of the night, I think. Third or fourth. I'd have to go back and look at the set list, but I loved it. Duran Duran's set was okay. It was mostly the hits. So do you remember, because it was so long ago, who played guitar on the live show? I mean, because I'm sure Niall wasn't on stage. It was stage. Warren Cooker. Warren Cookerilla? It, it was Warren, wasn't it? I don't know. That's why I'm asking, because I didn't see them on this tour. So Warren was hey, let me think pretty for much a second. the touring guitarist. They okay. had the band, three or four girls singing back at Nick's. John and Simon, obviously. There was like a percussion, a percussion guy. I don't know what's wrong with me tonight. I apologize. Steve Ferroni. Well, no, there was a percussion guy and Steve Ferroni. And I want to say that percussion guy on a couple of tracks went and played a second keyboard. And I believe he was the second guitarist a couple, okay. two or three times over the course of the show, too. The main thing that stands out in my mind is in between the songs, Simon kept dishing out these ridiculous one-liners. Like, before Election Day, he went into this little spiel, and he was like, now we bring you to the Election Day, and Election Day started, and I think before Girls on Film, there was some little silly lecture about women not necessarily being objects, but that's how we all really see them. Something like that. Mm. They put they recorded a concert from this tour, but they it was a different set list, and they cut out all the between song antics. D- didn't they release some of the live tracks on the special edition of Notorious? Probably, yeah. I should also note that I think this concert got cut a bit short because it was un freaking godly hot in Atlanta this day, and you could tell they were not not with it at all. 
yeah, I don't think a lot of people from the UK realize just how hot it gets, well, it especially nice... in the southern states like like you are. It was one of those Georgia days where it was still 92, 94 degrees at 9, 30, 10 at night. And this was in a Six Flags amusement park, so it was either be there watching a show around the park. There was nowhere to, nowhere to take shelter in this amphitheater for a minute, except for the restroom. Oh. All right. Shall we flip the album over? Let's go. All right. So we have the second track named after an Alfred Hitchcock movie. This is Vertigo, Do the Demolition. This one was a bit lackluster to me, too. What do you think? I don't like it. I don't like it. This was the B-side for the single Meet El Presidente, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Yes. It drags. It drags. It is too slow. Yeah. I, I You know, especially for a song where you're talking about do the demolition. Oh, my gosh. You know, speed it up. You know, give me some of that energy. <laughs> You, you, you're right. You expect this to be a really upbeat song, and it's just black. Yeah, I don't care for it. Now, Andy played the bridge on this song, and Warren played the rest of the guitar parts. So that gives us, what, that's the third song that Andy's been on? So far, yes. I wonder who helped them write a lot of this stuff. I wonder how much, uh, is it Niall or Bernard? Well, Bernard wasn't working with Duran. So it was just now, okay. But according to everything that I've read, the songs were already written by the time Niall showed up in London. So it would have been Simon, Nick, and John doing the bulk of the writing. And, you know, another thing that I had read too, and no, I'm sorry, I didn't read, that I'd actually seen in the Sky TV interview, uh, John and Nick had commented how unusual it was, and I think this is pertaining to that tour that you saw too, how unusual it was that they had to teach Warren how to play the songs because up until then, you know, they wrote songs together, the five of them with Andy. Right. So Andy was a part of the songwriting process, at least at this point, because he wasn't a full fledged member yet. Warren was not. Oh so, yeah. They had that. Yeah. Well, they would have had to go back and teach him the back catalog too. That too, right. But especially these new songs, and John had said, I think it was John, might have been Nick, that that was really a challenge for them that they had never encountered before, that they never actually had to. I wonder who taught them the guitar parts. Wh- whoever wrote the song, so pro- John and, and 
and Nick probably like, okay. hey, here's how here's what we're envisioning for the middle eight. You know, here's what we're envisioning for. I know that Niall, you know, had his rhythm guitar and I know he yeah. improvised a lot of that. But uh, as far as like the lead guitar. Yeah, I mean, that's it was a very unusual situation for them. Warren is a pretty proficient player, even at that point. I mean, he had been playing for years, so I, it was probably no problem for him to sit down and listen to a lot of the stuff and go, all right, this, here you go. You know, they yes, were probably, I, it was a lot of it was them teaching them what pedals and stuff Andy was using on what, where, you know, at what point, what song. Yeah. Now, you you do know that Warren actually started off with Frank Zappa, right? Right. I was going to say, he played with Zappa back in the 70s and then got into Missing Persons. And yeah. He, he was playing professionally about the time he was 12 or 13, wasn't he? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. I think he was. So... We're going to talk more about Warren Cucurillo, I think, in upcoming episodes, especially when he starts becoming a full-fledged member of Duran Duran yeah. and starts contributing to the songwriting. But I have said before on record, I would love to read his memoir. I mean, Andy Taylor put one out. John Taylor put one out. I would really love to read Warren. Now, Warren's got quite a reputation. The man cannot keep his clothes on. He's definitely a and, strange bird. And uh, he was known known for having orgies in his hotel room. I will barely let the women I've dated have been married to see me naked. I can't imagine doing something like that. Well, you know, he also worked out religiously. So, you know, he was very proud of his body. And there were times that, not on this album, but on other albums, where he actually would show up in the recording studio and play naked. Yeah, apparently Pearl Thompson and The Cure like to record naked, and they were... Oh, really? Nobody else was a fan of that. Yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> Why would you want to do that? <laughs> I, I, I don't get that. That's confusing to me. Anyways, yes, let's move on before... <laughs> and I've just so dropped my mic. Oh, dear. See, thinking about... <laughs> Anyways. I'm keeping that in. Yeah, please keep it up. I think we should keep all the funny stuff like this. Hold on, audience, hold on while I fix the mess I've gotten myself into here. I knocked my mic over. Move, uh -huh. the, move the thing. All right. Are we good? Up, up, up next, we have So Misled. This one was kind of more filler, if you ask me. What do you think, Lori? I, I can kind of see it now. I mean, that's why I was asking a second ago. Who helped them write some of these songs? Because it just doesn't seem like some of this doesn't seem like Duran Duran material to me. 
Now, you know, it's interesting you should mention that because this song in particular, I think we really are seeing Nile Rodgers and Steve Ferroni's influence. Yes. And that, that kind of funk fusion experimentation that they were they were going for. So, I mean, to say that the songs had been written does not, you know, mean that other... Oh, they were definitely changed later. in the studio. Stuff rarely goes from their demo to, you know, what you hear on record. This particular song, I mean, it's interesting. If you listen to the lyrics, it's a, a glamorous woman in conversation with her dark alter ego. Mm-hmm. Right? I do like the lyrics, but this is another one of those songs that I think is is, is it's forgettable. This, you know, you mentioned that side two was the weaker side. What was the deal with that back then? I don't know. Well, you know, I I think we talked about this in other episodes where, you know, DJs and um, people that make the decisions about the programming, they would usually only listen to like yeah. the first two, two tracks of an album. So you would want to top load it with the good stuff. You know, I mentioned earlier, John had said that he was only happy with about half the tracks. And I would say about half the tracks are completely forgettable. Yeah, they're. they're you know, I, I still like the album overall, though. Yeah. I, You know, I'll say this. I play this one more than I do the album, two albums that follow it. You listen to this more than the two albums that... Oh, that, yeah, for sure. Really? Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I definitely... And I, I think we're kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I definitely prefer Big Thing. Big Thing it, it to, is to definitely... The what's the one after Big Thing? Liberty? Now, Liberty, that one didn't get a lot of attention, but Liberty's got some decent songs. It's got a couple. Big Thing is a lot better, a lot, a much better album than Liberty, if you want my opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I think Liberty suffers from the same issue that this one does, that, you know, there's there's some tracks that just, they don't feel complete, you know? I think the thing with that Big Thing is, as they embrace that whole house music thing, which hadn't really gotten mainstream yet, that was a good idea for them to do. I think that definitely sold some copies at a record. Where hell, we're going to deep dive on that one. Let's save it for that. Let's save all that for that. Yep. Oh, incidentally, so misled. Nile Rodgers is the only guitarist on this track. Interesting. Yeah. So shall we move on to... Up next, we have Mito Presidente. And this one, this was an all right song to me. What did you think? I like it. I don't like that weird 
like pseudo scratching sound at the very beginning with the horns. It jolts me. It's like, you know, you know what I'm talking about <laughs> in the, the very beginning. Now, this one, it didn't do so well. This was, a, as I mentioned, the third single from the album that they released in April 87. I don't ever remember this single or the video until very recently. I was going to say, I only ever remember seeing this video maybe once or twice. I had like a premiere for it and it just kind of fizzled. The single version is actually different from the album version. Yes. It's a little bit more uh, up-tempo, the single version. Mm -hmm. You know, they were definitely going for like a, a Latin American vibe. Yeah. You know, I, I like I like the lyrics again, you know, Miss November Tuesday, you know, her high heeled shoes and, you know, it, it's a woman that's, you know, taking charge. Of course, then would that be El Presidente or wouldn't that be, I mean, because that, that would be masculine, right? Wouldn't that be, I mean, I don't know Spanish. I anyway. believe so. No, I, I, I really dig the lyrics and this is one that, you know, I'll listen to sometimes if, you know, I'm at work and I need, you know, some motivation. But again, just that very beginning of the song just really puts me off. I think if we could eliminate that, I think this would be a good song. Well, that's an interesting take on it. Okay. I think, you know, one of the things that annoyed me with this album overall was out of horns. Okay. So Great. you're not a... Not a big fan of the Borneo horns, then. Suit Duran Duran to me. I, like you noted earlier, the synthesizers were kind of scaled back on this album, and the synthesizers are, I'd say, one of the top three things that put Duran Duran on the map. Okay. So I found it strange they would kind of ease that back a bit. I can't imagine what uh, Nick thought of it. Well, I do get what you're saying. But then thinking back to, you know, like the reflex, the, the sax was very pronounced. And then there were a lot of uh, live performances of the reflex where I think they did have some horns. And those were fine, but they were, you know, in this album, they were in the folk, one of the focal points of the album, really. Was yeah, that's horns, true. You know, that's and maybe that's one of the reasons why this album didn't do as well as it could have. I think for fans of Duran Duran. Right. And see, and this is the thing, is that Duran Duran is kind of like David Bowie in that respect. Every few years, they're reinventing their sound, right? Just like Bowie used to do. And they had idolized Bowie, so that makes sense that they would do this. But, I mean, I know 8th grade Lori was not not ready for it. Right. It just didn't, you know, the, like I said, the first time I heard it, I was like, where is this going? Yeah. What are they doing here? Yeah. So the song reached uh, only number 70 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Didn't do so well. And this, was, as we mentioned, was the third single. So they scrapped their plans for a fourth single after this. Dial Rogers is playing the guitar on this one, by the way. And uh, that's all I got. So up next, we're going on to Winter Marches On.
system is just, it's horrible. Oh, really? See, you know, I, I, I like this one. This one's terrible. What don't you like about I it? I should have put it in a different, it might have worked as maybe track four. Okay. Instead of being, this album just ends on such a low note. If you notice a lot of 80s albums, the last two tracks would always be ballads. Okay. I don't know why they would do that back then. You know what it kind of reminds me of? I don't remember what year Wham's Music from the Edge of Heaven came out. I think 86, wasn't it? 86, yeah. So the same year as Notorious. But they did a hot side and a cool side instead of like. Yeah, I remember. I've never, I've never heard that album, but I've seen that before. That was the first time I remember actually seeing it. I kind of wonder if maybe that's not a little bit what they were going for with Duran Duran. But then again, you got Mito Presidente, which kind of that doesn't that's not consistent with that. So never mind. I heard somebody say once that you listen to an album with a girl and you start making out. Mm-hmm. And then the, about the last two tracks, you're doing the main D. I don't know, Pat. I'm like, you know, you kind of got a good point there. I mean, one does wonder if someone, some producer somewhere wasn't wasn't thinking something like that. Hmm. Well, I do like Winter Marches On, and I actually have a playlist specifically of Duran Duran and Arcadia songs that I'll listen to when I'm trying to relax and wind down and this is one of the songs that's on that playlist this is just a nice sad somber but it's a, it's a beautiful song this I usually stop this album at Nido Presidente okay well so two things worth noting on Winter Marches On before we march on uh, Niall Rogers is on guitar here again and this was the B-side for the Notorious single. Yep. And this is a little bit unusual because Duran uh, Duran was not in the habit of putting an album track on side B. They would do, you know, either a, a remix or they would do, you know, like a, an unreleased track. So this was... This was a little bit surprising, and I'm kind of wondering if maybe they hadn't run out of steam at that point, too. You know what I mean? No, they were trying to drum up. They were trying to sell more copies of the record in that case. You think so? Oh, yeah. They were giving you a sample of the album. I gotcha. Does that make sense? You see that? It does. It does. That means they probably knew this wasn't going to be the, you know, sell as well as the other records. Mm Mm-hmm. Could it, All right. Could have could have possibly been the record label forced them to do that too. I'm not really of the impression that they the label could have forced them to do much of well, anything. Well, that they point. were the label probably heard the record and went like we're saying, guys, you know, what have we got here? So they record labels more worried about selling more copies of the album than they are fussing around some singles and fans getting a bonus track. If that was true. And it might be. It may very well be the case. Then they must have felt that this was a strong song, that it would entice people back, you know, into the album. Well, you do have a good point there. More than likely than not, they picked that because they felt it was a cut standout track. Yeah. Which is what they would have put there. And a lot of times the B side would be a bit slower song than the A side. Okay. That's true. That's true. Uh, The last track. Track 10. 
That's okay. We're up to proposition. I'm sorry. I was looking at something about Mito Presidente. I apologize for that audience. It's okay. Did you find anything good? No, I was looking. I don't know. I was looking at the cover art for it. I'm sorry. What does the cover look like? I don't even know. It's just a, see, I was going to say, I had, that's what the tour shirt I got looked like. So it's just the boys. Yeah. It didn't have all the Mito Presidente art, but it had that picture. It was a red sweatshirt, actually. I think it had, it had a star on the sleeve like that. All right. Proposition. This one was real lackluster to me, too. Like I just said, I'd, I'll often cut this album off right there as Winter Marches On starts. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. I think Proposition is one of the weaker tracks. It's interesting that they chose this one to end the album because it's got Niall and Andy on guitar. This is the fourth song with Andy. So it makes sense, I guess, that we're closing it off. But yeah, this is not this is not one of their stronger songs. It's not bad, okay? Don't get me wrong. It's not that it's a bad song. But if you were to stop me on the street, Trey, and say, hum a few bars of Proposition, I'd be hard-pressed to do it. I, 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 wouldn't, I, mean, I wouldn't be able to either. Right. It's forgettable, you know? It's like, as soon as I've heard it, it's like it's wiped out of my mind. It's really weird. I think they were having a hard time trying to decide what was going to sell in 86, 87. Because they knew the new... The new wave thing was well dying by 86, and they were probably sure they had producers in the label going, look, you need to, you know, try and catch up with what else is going on. Well, keep in mind, too, that they had lost their managers, right? They had fired the Barrow Brothers, and so I think the Barrow Brothers were giving them a lot of guidance. Right. And now they're self-managed, so they now have to make decisions that Mm -hmm. maybe they previously would have you know, had these discussions with a manager, so. Well, they still would have had a, like an A&R rep from Capital and EMI in there going, you know, that's always prevalent with the recording sessions. So that's the end of the album. However, I do want to give an honorary mention to one song that was not on the album, but it was recorded as a B-side, and that is We Need You. This is a really gorgeous song. It, it is. And this is actually John Taylor on guitar. Let's listen. Gone down, we know what you do when 
I wish they had included this on the album and taken off like I don't know Vertigo or uh, Proposition or you know we talk about the order. I was I was get bring that up. That one B side from this album would have fit on the album better than a couple of the other tracks. Yeah. Do you know anything about this song? We need you. Do you know what it's about? Not at all. No, I don't. This is about Andy. Andy Taylor. Oh. This is a message to Andy. Andy, we need you. Now that you kind of point that out, yeah, it's obvious. Duh. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how we go from the very first track, Who Gives a Damn About a Flaky Bandit, you know, this kind of Andy Taylor diss, to, hey, we, we still need you. Thank you for letting me include that one, Trey, even though it's not on the album, because it's a really good song. Yeah, no problem. I knew you were going to bring up, I knew you were going to bring some of those up. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say about Notorious? I think that about covers. It's a, overall, it's a, it's, a, it's a decent album. It was just a, a very different term for Duran Duran. You know, when it came out, I loved it. Over the years, I've kind of looked back on it and gone, eh, you know. Now, I, I will say I didn't like it when it came out, but it's grown on me over the years. And now I find myself listening to it, whereas, you know, in 86, 87, I didn't. I remember something... Probably People Magazine put out a scathing review of it. Yeah. I remember hearing people talk about that. It's like, a, you know, the Notorious single was everywhere. MTV went through the roof with it and was all over the radio down here. Well, that was their comeback single. Yeah. But then all of a sudden it just kind of went off a cliff, didn't it? So It sure did. I, like Again, the musical climate greatly changed. Alternative rock began its big... Yeah. Took an even bigger step into things and was pushing all the new wave stuff out of there. Duran uh, Duran was actually kind of on the, the cusp of this funk rock fusion. We have a couple that we're going to talk about in 1987, Trey, that also yes. kind of take this funk rock to a new level. But that brings us to, yeah, I mean, we're in 87 now. So what do we got planned for our next episode? Are we going to do the top 20 of 87? 10 from me, 10 from you, like we normally do, but we've already selected a few yep. notable albums from 87 that we're going to do album deep dives on. So I think we're going to have a total of four episodes on 87, if memory serves. Oh, thank you. Well, there's one album in 87 we just can't ever look at. I'm sure everyone's already guessed which one that is. Are you talking about Kick? Yes. Yeah, speaking of funk rock. That was the album that NXS just broke on through, right? Boy, did they. It was one of my, I wasn't expecting that shit moments in the 80s. Right? Well, I'm really looking forward to that episode, but I'm looking forward to to the next one where we're talking about our top 20, and I've already got my songs picked out. I'm waiting for you to pick yours out. I'm struggling with mine a little. There's a, there's a year with a whole hell of a lot of stuff came out. Yeah. Pretty much all of my favorite bands put out something that year. So let's close off this episode. Thank you again for listening and for sharing with us this album from 1986. Goodbye from me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Y'all have a good two weeks. Yay.